This is Living Proof Radio, May 2024. All of our full episodes are available on our Patreon with weekly drops, a Patreon-only radio show, and Living Proof magazine delivered to your house every issue, as well as our entire members-only library backlog. Patreon.com slash York. And we are live, bro. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a huge honor for us. And uh, you know, you're you're known for talking about a lot of things that have to do with uh, what's going on today, which is like a lot of the gentrification that's going on, a lot of the r- rising prices right now with inflation. Everything is just uh, even. You know, everything's just been getting more and more expensive. And you often talk about how. Uh, some of the greatest things that have happened in America uh, culturally have been connected to uh, cheap lifestyle, inexpensive lifestyle, cheap rent, and all that stuff. And it's because of this inexpensive lifestyle and the cheap rent that people had the time to pursue their creative passions, had the time to think and, you know, just learn more about themselves and the world around them. And that's essentially what led you to be you. And now with everything that's been happening, we don't have that anymore. So you talk about how you could never be you again. You gave the whole rap. Pretty much. Pretty much. You see, if I look at me for me, who I am, I think I've lived the American dream. You know, I came here in 79, Western Canada, with my wife. We hooked up in 72. So I came here to be a famous artist, do all of that stuff, right? Got into Soho, hated that world, hated it. So I moved over to Lower East Side. So I traded a career for an adventure. And if I look at the life that I've lived with the Lower East Side as it was, um, yeah, that's my American dream. You know, Hillary wanted to go climb the mountain, Mount Everest or whatever, and he climbed that. That was his dream. My dream was to really, it turned out to be an adventure. I mean, you know, it didn't really, you know, there's no, not after the Rolls Royce and the Madison Square Garden or that kind of thing, but I've lived a really kind of interesting life for me and an adventure for me. But uh, being young guys like yourself, I would say, you know, I came here really because of uh, Skid. Skid uh, hooked me up. And so I was talking to Skid about a number of different things. And I started off from the bad end of the working class, you know, in in trouble at school, a lot of that. Never saw myself as a bad kid. I was never criminally minded. But I got into a lot of trouble, fights and stuff like that. You know, in high school, I got in a fight with the cops. Ended up going to jail, adult jail in high school. Sort of thought it was no big deal because you got in a fight with somebody and they just happened to be police. What's the problem? Well, it turned into a problem because it was a couple of felonies. Anyway, life goes on. I meet the woman, Elsa Renza. Became, uh, we lived together for about 40 years before she became my wife. But then uh, she walked me across to the other side of the street. And that's really important. Because, you see, if you grow up and you grow up in a family of doctors, let's say, medicine is pretty much part of the language of the day. So it's not that big a jump to go to medical school or somewhere else like that because you've grown up in that environment. You know, if you grew up in a ranch and your father's a cowboy, it's not such a big stretch to be a cowboy. You know, if you come from Harlem and you want to be a cowboy, it's a whole other, you know, you've got to do a lot of moves. So one of the points that I'm getting to and how I met this woman is really important. Like, if we look at, I've done a number of books, and a lot of the books I've done are anthologies. Now, what is a guy like me doing, doing books? I mean, I'm the last guy that should be doing books, but I found interest in books, and so I got interest in making a lot of books. 
because by meeting the right woman, I eventually, like I say, crossed the street, went to college, all that kind of thing. But one of the books I did is called uh, Street Gangs in the Lower East Side, and it's one of the only histories of street gangs on the Lower East Side. And I did that with Jose Cuelas. Now, Jose Cuelas, I met him in kind of a funny way. All of a sudden, I get this banging on the door. This was during when the homeless were in Tompkins Square Park. And at some point, bring me back to art. So what happens is, is that he's come, he come, rolls down to my place. They, were, they look like bikers, but they're street gang. They were the last street gang, Lower East Side, to wear colors. Colors are the patches on the back of a jacket. And they were called uh, Satan Center Nomads. So he's like banging on my door with a couple of the guys. And I live there, I'm kind of by myself, got a little storefront, I'm there. I got to deal with what I got because everybody knows where I live and that's who I am. So we confront each other. Turns out some girl was trying to set me up and saying that I was using the photographs to um, give to the cops so they could, you know, get people in trouble. Mm, Turns out that he was an intelligent guy, checked it out didn't happen. So anyway, long story short, he ends up, you know, attempting to murder two people in his own club, and they ended up going to jail for like 18 years. He got 18 to life, he got out in 18. So, and he had gone in before that, he'd been shot and stuff like that. He was never criminally minded. He was violent. You see, when you're dealing with people, especially on the street or within those kind of dangerous environments, there's a big difference between somebody who's criminally minded and somebody who's violent and somebody who happens to just live there because it's part of his environment. So his big thing was if he drinks Jack Daniels, then he flips and then it's, you know, game over. So before he went to jail, I got him into art. And art kind of changed his life. And then once he was in jail, he kept doing art and that really kind of kept him going. And then when he got out of jail, I'd been pushing him to be a writer. So we did Street Gangs in the Lower East Side. Now there's magic to this stuff. And what's the magic? The magic is books, education, staying away from uh, the Jack Daniels and the heavy drugs and that kind of stuff. A lot of people really have like the mind that really could propel them to be in good places. So what happens is by pushing him, he wrote uh, a lot of these uh, street gangs at Lower East Side. And when he was in jail, he studied street gangs. So for 18 years, he had a lot of chances to meet a lot of old-timers and old gangsters and stuff like that. So he put that information together in a book. So now he's doing art and writing. That's a big, big difference from just, you know, trying to murder people and stuff like that. So switch back. So you come from the bad end of the working class, and like I say... If somebody really made it out of my neighborhood, it basically was they became a teacher or a librarian or something. No doctors, no you know lawyers. wasn't like that kind of a neighborhood. And a few people made it in business. So basically, I got out of what changed my world was I, I got into art in high school. So art changed my life. And when I ask people a question, and I take the black people, because black's sort of easy to see. I say if you took, let's say, 100 famous black musicians, let's say in the 80s or the 90s, and you look at their backgrounds, probably all of them, or most of them, came from more difficult backgrounds rather than good backgrounds, right? And some of the ones that came from bad backgrounds but could do sports, like Mike Tyson, he could get into boxing, and boxing eventually carried him over the top. And he was good enough that he slipped a few times, but his thing was able to keep him going, so he still got back to the top. 
So then I asked them, how did most of these people get out of there? Music. Where'd they get the music from? I mean, black people go to church more than sometimes other people, so it was either church or school or some after-school club. So the music took them to the other world, to the other side of the street. Me, it was art. If it hadn't been for art, I would have never crossed that street because there was nothing in me that could have got me to the other side of the street. And now I've done, you know, like this whole stack of books. I've, uh, you know, done a lot of videotapes. I've had movies, different kinds of things. So it's art. And here's the lesson for you. And this is really important. And you got to remember this. Once Giuliani got into power, then Bloomberg, what did they take out of schools? Was it art? Art and music. <laughs> art and music. So if you want to lower crime and take people to a better place, art and music, especially in inner cities and places like that, do that. So why would they take out art and music? Because it's like a, 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 and you can't tell me that they're that stupid that they don't realize, oh my God, you know, because sports they left alone because there's too much money in sports. You know, those guys are good at basketball or whatever. So that's a pool of money because that's a talent pool. And you know that if you can come from the inner city and you can play basketball or football or run or you're athletic, you good chance you can get out. But now you take away art and music, where's there left to go? And then if you look at, like, an inter like take a working-class music form, hardcore. Where did those guys ever pick up a guitar or music or something? It came from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have that introduction. And so I kind of covered the last of the wild and free of the Lower East Side. But it's really the fact that, and you nailed it. If anybody's listening to this program, you don't have to listen to me. You have to take the first 10 minutes of, what's your name again? Angel. Angel? Yeah. Of what Angel said. That's my spiel right there. I mean, he nailed it pretty good. Because, you see, if you look at the 20th century, the bad boy was like James Dean, motorcycle gangs, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, all kind of working class stuff. By the time you get to the 21st century, it's like guys in helicopters, uh, computers. It's nobody's going in and sticking up a bank unless they're doing it really high tech. So you got to be like high tech. So they've switched the whole kind of psychology of our life to this high tech, big money, that point of view. And so in the, in the 20th century, it was really about, you know, most of the famous artists that, that made it, even in fine art, like Jackson Pollock came from Kansas. A lot of these people didn't come from great places, but they made it to great places. But now, if you want to make it in art, you almost have to go to Yale. If you go to Yale, you get a master's degree in Yale, you get out, you're guaranteed. That's got to be changed around. And so how do we get the world back to that? Because in my day, I could work for, let's say, two days a week. I mean, I was fortunate in certain ways. I was working for this Jewish landlord. He was a Holocaust survivor, right? And so I realized this guy came here after the war with no money, nothing. By pooling together with a couple of people, they then were able to buy some buildings because they could pool the money. They bought it at the lowest end of town, which was Chinatown at that time. That's when, you know, the Bowery was Skid Row. So that's where he bought some of his property. 
So working for him, there's two things I learned from him. One was the hookup guy. Now, you see, in New York at that period of time, you used to be able to survive by doing deals. You know, you go onto Orchard Street, you want to buy a suit, you got $13, and the suit's 15 So you say to the guy, okay, look, I won't take the vest, I'll just take the jacket and the pants. You say, okay, I'll give it to you for 13 You can't do that anymore. You know, everything was almost negotiable. It was kind of like everything you could sort of work out deals for. Or I'll tell you, how about if I take three? You give me a better price, okay, take three. You don't hear people do that anymore. You know, you go into uh, some Nike shoe store or something, you tell the guy, tell the guy I'll take uh, three pairs of those sneakers, you give me a deal. Chances are, he's not, no, you don't let me ask the manager. Yeah, right. So all of that lifestyle has been lost, and that was what made America great, was coming here, a lot of immigrants, and working your way up, because you could work your way up. So working for this Jewish landlord, I learned about being the hookup guy because I became the manager. So what does a manager do? This guy needs a plumber. I find him a plumber. So I learned how to hook people up. That was, like, important. That's a, that's a lifestyle thing, right, which I was able to carry with me at different times. And then I learned that the price of property was going up because at that time Chinatown was crossing Canal Street and there was, like, a tsunami of money, and so the property and everything was starting to go up. That really started to gentrify New York, Lower East Side, from the point of view of real estate was going up because buildings were flipping. Didn't necessarily mean that everybody moved there, although if you want to see what change that was, Little Italy turned into Chinatown. So you could actually physically see the change. So we knew we had to buy a place. So we eventually found this two-story building on Essex Street. Now there was a, like what they called a sweatshop down below. And you have to really be careful with this PC politics and stuff because sometimes they say sweatshop, everybody thinks, ah! The, the one that was below in this building was basically Dominican. They all knew each other from the boss. Their kids went to school together. There was a, it was almost like a big family. So it wasn't like sweatshop. You know? So sometimes you, know, you have to really be careful with that because it's a way of tricking people also to spread, send them overseas, not to unions, not to any of that sort of stuff. But we couldn't get a mortgage. So we went to 42 banks, couldn't get it. Called one guy up, he said, look, I'll give you the money, but I don't think you want it from me. I said, okay, that's cool, you're probably right. I probably don't want it from you. So we learned, okay. But then Elsa said to me, she said, look, I'm gonna go up to the president of Citibank and I'm gonna talk to the president and you stay home. So I was good with that because, you know, Elsa's looked more respectable maybe than I did or whatever. So she went to the vice president's office and talked to the secretary. And talking to the secretary is like talking to the vice president because who's the, who's the pre vice president's trust but his secretary, right? So she explained the whole thing, got a call that night from the, from the, from the bank, and we explained. There's a job downstairs. You see, this is like the hookup idea. You're sort of trading a skill and making something else happen. So because there was a dress shop in the front and the clothing store in the back, that would be a steady income because we didn't have that. That's why we couldn't get a mortgage. And that they would pay the mortgage and then we could move in upstairs. So that's how we did that. So... It was about coming in, but I could never do that again because of the cost of, of property and things now. It's just, it's just not possible. So that starts ending that possibility because a lot of immigrants would come here, they would pool their money, 
you know, start grocery stores or whatever, and then eventually they would own a house. And, you know, you'd see the Italians do it. You'd see all these different groups did that. Well, you can't do that anymore. I could then work, let's say, a couple of days a week. I was walking down Avenue A one day, and I saw this guy making baseball caps. So I went in there and said, wow, can you make me a baseball cap? And he said, yeah. I said, can I have like an orange peak and a black top? He said, yeah, it's like three bucks. Okay, go there. Uh, so then I went home and I had a pair of pinking shears. And, and next door used to be the sporting guy. And he used to make this, the iron-on stuff for uh, club jackets and things, or the iron-on that cloth, that fabric, you know, that mm -hmm. stuff. So I got some of that and I ironed it on, made the first Clayton hat. Eh, it looks pretty funky today. It's a little octopus up here like that. But then I went back another time, and I saw he was doing the jacket backs for the Savage Skulls in the, in, the, in the Bronx. So I realized he had this little machine that he could draw a skull with. So I said, wow, could you draw skulls? And so it took me a minute to sort of convince him to get him to do it. And then he did it, and we invented the first Clayton cap. So we were the first per people to take the embroidery off of the front, around the side, put a signature on the outside, and then everybody was going out of business at that time because this is when everything was, was being shipped overseas. So we bought all the machinery from uh, uh, different going out of sale and bankruptcies and like that, and Elsa had been good with sewing, so we got into our own cap business. So now we're independent. We're making our own caps. And then it turned out that we did custom ones and also put a label on the outside. So once again, we, we, we changed the history of America by changing the baseball cap. First people to brand it on the outside, first people to take it around the cap. And we were able to survive by our own labor. So now we're, not, we're working for ourselves, which means if we want to stay up till 12, I would basically design them and she would make them. And then we got into GQ, said one of the two baseball caps made in America. We uh, did jacket backs, did a jacket back from Mick Jagger, went on tour in Australia. Independent business. And so, and who had whatever guessed that I'd be in the fashion business? But here I am. Ta da! Fashion business, okay. Hey. Anyway, whatever. So that kept us alive. So now we're keeping alive by our own means. So then, and we made the cows for years. And became quite famous with the caps. And we had about 10 years where we were the only people that was, were, was doing that. We started in 86. By the time you got to 96, you started having baseball teams putting them around the side and stuff. The reason it took that long for them to catch up was because they were switching over to, at that time, China was way behind the eight ball. So it was really going to places like Hong Kong. It was going to uh, uh, Haiti, Mexico, places like that. Then eventually China got so it was all hooked up, and then China could do all that stuff perfectly. But it took China a long time. The poison sheet rock, the poison dog food, it took them a long time. But now they're up to speed and they're there. But um, so that was one way that we made our mark as independents, living the dream for us. You know, maybe somebody else wanted to be Mick Jagger. I was, you know, I was okay with what we were doing. Well, I did, and so. I met this guy in the Pyramid Club, and his name is Nelson Sullivan, and I always mention him because he changed my life in like a minute or less. He had this handheld video camera that was, you know, you could hold in your hand. It was commercially available, even had an automatic focus, and it, it could deal with low light, and you all of a sudden you're part of the show. 
So now you're part of the action. You got because prior to that, the professionals, they had the big camera, the tubes, the lighting guy, the, the sound guy. They needed the whole show. So I always mention him because he changed my life because then I started doing video. And then August 6th, 7th, 1988, I did this videotape, which was three hours and 33 minutes. I did it with Elsa. She had my back. So because batteries would only last so long, we were a bit paranoid. We would take out the video and give it to her, and then she would run home, take it home. I have to say walk home, because I would say to Elsa, can you, can you run to the store for me? She says, I don't run. <laughs> so, so she would go home. So she, cha she would be charging the batteries, because as you know, with this equipment, battery lasts so long. But the, those, and the, and the tapes now are two hours. Those big professional cameras a lot of times had like 15-minute beta tapes or whatever, and those batteries didn't last that long. Then you had to have the whole belt with all the batteries. So we were like, good. So we did this videotape that became known, and we got it classified as a police riot, one of the only police riots in New York City's 20th century. And we shot three hours and 33 minutes. Now... Like I say, it was our adventure. So if you go through, and this was a famous case. You know, I went on Oprah, got the concept out to the world, held up the camera, little brother is watching big brother. So that was the idea. We're switching the dynamic now that the streets are as powerful as big brother. And so I had little brothers watching big brother. So if you go through all the big cases, uh, Floyd, uh, um, Rodney King, all of those cases, you don't know who the video guy was, right? The video guys always disappear. Yeah. Well, me, I was a moron. I, was, I jumped right into the fire. You know, I went to Oprah, I went to all the news shows, because I had a passion at that time that the cops were wrong, what they were doing is wrong, and I just had the fire in the belly at that time. Yeah, I eventually got my teeth knocked out. I got knocked unconscious. I mean, you know, I paid a price for standing up. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's kind of when you're in the fight and things like that happen, you don't really feel it in the same way because you're kind of into it mentally, you know? Probably like if you're playing hockey, you get in a fight, you're not really, but if, where if you got in a fight like that on the street, you might be thinking about it. So it's kind of like that. And so... I just was so passionate about being right that I stayed in the game. And like I say, if you go through all of those histories, I'm the only one that stayed at it for years. Mm, do it once in a while now, but I'm kind of over all that. I switched into, after a while, the politics got to be a bit sort of much. I did the politics for about four solid years, something like that. Got arrested a bunch of times. You know, the cops tried to wind me into a murder case because I was good at it. And I didn't really give a shit. So I kind of had the passion and the drive, and I was good at it. And I had always had Elsa at my back. And Elsa is always kind of a very sort of soft, sweet person. But I'd be, she would be right there behind me, and I'd be able to hand the camera off to her, and she would take the camera and keep it going. That's why some of those things you see me getting arrested. I give, oh, Mr. Patterson, you're under arrest. What for? Resisting arrest. Well, it's kind of like, you know, I got the... So I answer the camera, and then she takes off with it and goes on like that. So that tape changed the history of, of video technology and protests in that. It's another little chick, little click mark in the changing history of America, right? Because now you had citizens journalism coming up, and now you have CopWatch. A whole different concept is being put out into the world. So we got the caps, we got this. So even as a, you know, a crazy guy in the Lower East Side, 
without, you know, the big Hollywood backing or whatever, you can still make a contribution. You know, you can still put yourself out there. You can still do your thing. And if you're passionate enough and dedicated enough, you can make a mark. I mean, like Angel said in the beginning, a lot of America is turning around that much. You know, Black Lives Matter and all of that, if they're really into that, they should be demanding art be put back in school. Because the other thing that's interesting about art is that a lot of troubled kids are good at art. Look at tattooing. You know, I mean, tattooing turned into a real art form. So really, and there's no question, I wasn't a kid in trouble as, as a kid. You know, I got strapped a lot in school, detentions, all of that stuff. Well, art brought me here right now. I'm talking to you guys because I took an art class in high school. <laughs> it's funny, right? So that's where that goes. So that's kind of switching off the art career. So now before I die, before I hit the big one, I got to establish myself and get my art and all the archives and all that saved so that the adventure can finally turn into a career. <laughs> so you got any questions? Yeah, I mean, like for everything that happened and uh, all the things that you've experienced and all the things that, you know, just went down in the LES in that era, it all just kind of is going away in a way because of the expensive lifestyle do you think there's any way to combat this gentrification or us as uh, just normal people little people is there anything we can actually do to change that or is it just out of our hands well first of all we're not little people you know we're just people you know we leave the little people for the big guys but um you know, it's a very interesting question. I think what you're doing right now has the potential to do that. You know, I, I think you have to establish a set of rules that you think are, are possible. I think there's some things out there that are kind of confusion, like this he, she, all this kind of stuff. I think when you start throwing that into the mix, you sort of wonder, what is that all really about, and does it really matter? I mean, you know... I don't care if somebody's gay or not. It means nothing to me. You keep your hands out of my pants, I'm okay. You can be whoever you want to be. Just keep your stuff on that side of the drawer and I'll keep my stuff on this side and it's fine. So those are like distractions. And so what if, if the whole concentration gets off on being sidebars like that, so the thing of it is, is that the concentration has to change. Hmm. We have to start thinking, what would propel us to be in a better place? Like the other thing that especially Bloomberg did is he destroyed small business. I mean, I'm already talking about, you know, I started doing that video thing. I was even able to get into TV because there wasn't TV guys could go around and catch stuff like I was catching so I could get something on, let's say, Inside Edition because they wanted to, oh, boom, bang, street stuff, right? With the big cameras, they couldn't really catch it as quickly as somebody like myself could. So once again... You know, I didn't want to get deep into a, a, a job and a career, so we sort of pulled back and found other ways it means to survive. Because in terms of who we are, our ambitions weren't that big. You know, I didn't need the big Cadillac outside. I didn't need the $800 coat or the sharkskin suit. You know, I just needed to be what it was that would allow me to be dressed and go out and have my style and to do what it was that I wanted to do. So I think we have to, you know, start bringing back small business, because we survived by making the caps. I think that's really important. Because once Bloomberg got enough, and he bought a third term, it's kind of like, how, how did he buy a third term? I mean, what's, people voted twice. 
And then all of a sudden, you know, now we got, uh, you know, 7-Eleven, Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts. We got the whole thing, Baskin and Robbins, everything you can get in Kansas. Well, the thing that used to be great about New York was is that it could have been some little Chinese restaurant over here that everybody went to that's really cool, inexpensive. Could have been that little Italian place where all of a sudden, my God, he's got the best spaghetti in the world or whatever. All that stuff is all being homogenized so that it's anything, anywhere. And that has to stop. So we have to be able to start bringing back small businesses, like small radio stations like this one, and we have to bring art and, and music back into schools. We have to find a way so people can, you know, be occupied in life by what it is that they want to do that sustains themselves. The whole thing, a big part of what the American dream was about was doing your own thing in a way. You know, you want to come here, you want to be a musician, you play really hard. You know, you want to be Lou Reed. Okay, am I gay, am I straight, am I junkie, am I not, da, 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 da. It takes a few years of bouncing the ball around, but all of a sudden, okay, I'm a, I'm a musician. Nowadays, if you don't make it in the first 10 minutes almost, it's like, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. And they've destroyed clubs and places that are inexpensive. We have to find a way to bring, rather call it the little people, Let's just call it the people. We have to find a way to bring stuff back to the people because we're the people. You know, I mean, as far as, you know, coming from the working class and all of that, you know, that's who I am. I mean, I got no problem with that. You know, I mean, that's, that's good enough for me. And I'm okay with what I've done. So, but I'm worried about people that come after me. You know, like, how do we take you know, people like yourselves and be able to elevate that up into something that's marketable. Like, how could you take some of these programs, put them on, I don't know what you put them on nowadays, you don't do DVDs or whatever, but you put them on something to get it out to a mass people. How could you guys learn to be entertaining enough yourselves? Like, what was it about L.A. with all the rappers and stuff? How come they were able to escalate in the way that they did? How did that work? Why did they do it? Maybe look into that. I mean, New York, it's been really hard to make it out of New York for a long time. Well, why was L.A.? I mean, they, we're talking about neighborhoods like, you know, maybe Compton or East L.A. or whatever, places that you wouldn't normally elevate yourself out of that environment. Well, what was there about them that was able to, you know, turn this into a business? Because we need business people, we need creative people, business people, marketing people, and PR people. You know, so if you got like a little team of people like that, the one that can make the art, the posters, the labels, whatever, and then you got the marketing person, the one that knows how to get it out there, and then you have the business person, the one that knows how to keep the books and keep everything together, and then you have the talent. And then you have maybe like yourselves, maybe you two are the, the ones with the vision. Because when you look at a lot of successful people, it's really small. Like, one, that's one of the things New York taught me was that, um, you know, a lot of these bands and that that make it are, are musicians. Sometimes it's the, it's the guy and his wife. His wife is a manager. You always sort of think, okay, you're with Columbia Records. You got it all hooked up now. They do this, they do that. No, a lot of times they rip you off. So maybe your wife is the business person and you're the talent. It's really important. I think in terms of bringing back small business, I think that uh, um, what we have now, which is cell phones and access to the Internet, is something that's huge because although it's we can't necessarily buy property, we can have our own website that we buy for twenty dollars a year, 
and then in a way we can sell things through the website which is like selling things like at a shop except the people who can buy it through the website is the entire world as opposed to on the shop like you have to physically go there and all that so i think like just like how the camera gave power back um to the public because you know little brother can watch big brother i think online gives power back to the masses because as as for now it's still cheap to access these things relatively that's right and you could still have the ambition you have to have the goal and the ambition you can't tell yourself that you could never buy a place you can't put yourself in that position because that's a mental point of view you know there's a magic to thinking and sometimes when you get the goal and you're right if you if you start off in the internet and you can make and expand your thing large enough you might be surprised you might reach your goal because probably what you're paying for rent and the amount that some of these people are paying you could be paying a mortgage so part of it is you got to have your goals in line so keep a goal active and in your head you need goals and then you learn how to uh, you know sort of develop those goals and you're right you do have the internet and you know you have to find a way to make what you do interesting enough that people want to listen to it and that becomes that thing and then eventually hopefully it grows but it's not bad to expand your base a little bit it's not bad to have somebody else uh, you know who's a business person or whatever because business people think business i don't think business i'm a shitty business person between Elsa and i she was like order and i was chaos so we had that that little thing going but if you created a little team here you could maybe expand way beyond what you're what you're doing and if you had a business person that started getting a plan you know i lived in the same building with keith herring there's a lot of things i admire about keith herring because he really did that whole thing himself which was incredible and he had things like buttons that went for a dollar to artworks that went for a lot more so he had the whole spectrum anybody could have a piece of keith herring you can have the button, maybe the $5 patch, the $100 poster, and the $10,000 painting, or whatever the scale was. But there was something for everybody. And that's important, too, because you want to have something that people can reach you with. And a button's not a bad way. And then maybe somebody like... I mean, there used to be... A, um, guy called Jolly. He used to sell them when the hardcore bands and all that would play at the Ritz. He used to have buttons of all the bands. And so that became part of the whole punk aesthetic or even the hardcore aesthetic is the buttons. A lot of people had buttons. So there are different ways to market yourself. So then it's good if you have a marketing person because probably, you, you know, if you're good with this kind of stuff, you might not be the marketing genius too. So sometimes having a little crew is not bad. And there's a lot of people out there that want something else to do. People might think you the guys are the coolest guys in the whole neighborhood because you got this whole radio thing going on. So there's other people don't mind being around cool, and that could be the marketing person. So maybe it's some woman in the neighborhood, some girl, whatever, somebody's friend, and they can start figuring out how we're going to pitch this to other people, how we're going to expand our base. And then you got the business person. Okay, let's start getting it out there. I mean, is there any way that we can take some of this and market it, or you know? Start thinking about it in a bigger way because this could turn into your lifestyle. Now, I was going to ask, do you think the advancements in technology and all these new gadgets and like the internet, for example, does it take does it provide a sort of numbness or take away a sort of soul to going to a shop in person and purchasing like physical copies of things? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. 
we become more isolated and more controllable. And all of a sudden, everybody, I don't care where you go, could be the Queen of England somehow sitting there, you know, on the cell phone. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, and it's an addiction. I mean, how do you break that and get back to more basics? I'm not sure. I mean, it's the technology that gets you out there, and it's the technology that also kind of harnesses you. Because then you start learning that people like take Facebook and that, and they manipulate large crowds of people like that. You know, I mean, I'm happy that Trump isn't president, you know, because I think I dealt with him once. In 1989, they tore down this squat where this, uh, and this, this black woman lived there with her family. And she obviously used to be a model or something. She wasn't a drug addict or something, but she still had the whole thing happening. So you knew that she shouldn't just be on the street. Somebody came over and whispered to me that they could get me to Trump. I said, okay, great, because we couldn't tell other people because Trump was hated even at that time by people like on the Lower East Side. So first he was going to put her in the Chelsea, in the... Um, well, for hotel, we said, no, that won't work. So he put her in the Chelsea Hotel. Now, at the end of the month of the Chelsea Hotel, he stiffed the hotel. So it's the same guy 30 years later, same mentality. And all the working people think that he's in their side, but really he's not. His thing is about him. But the thing that amazed me about him is how he exposed the system. Like, he called out the FBI. And he did catch him lying and cheating. There's no other senator would have done anything like that. So it's kind of like, how do we clean up the system? And then you see, he calls somebody like, let's say, Ted Cruz, lying Ted. And then lying Ted's always sucking up to him. You wonder, how do we clean the slate on the politicians? Because the politicians, I get these things every day from these politicians, and they're asking for money. Five dollars, two seventy-five. I'm thinking, come on, no, no ideas. No platform, just saying, I need the money, we're going we're gonna to beat Trump, or whatever. All I'm saying is somehow we have to clean the house, clean the deck, get better politicians, people that are really connected to the neighborhoods. Because in, in the end, the, the other thing gentrification has done is really destroyed the neighborhood. And the one thing that made really America great was neighborhoods. You know, because the neighborhoods gave you certain freedom. You could run around and it's a kid because you're safe. I mean, there are a lot of things about a neighborhood that's rich. You know, you got the pharmacist. He's not going to charge you too much because it's not some big international pharmacy. You know, the grocery guy knows, you, you know, you could maybe get credit one day and whatever. So neighborhoods, we have to sort of bring it back to the base. And I think neighborhoods are really an important way to do that. Uh, you know, the reason that gentrification happened, well, one of the things that comes with it is increasing prices. Um, but then with increases, increasing prices, it's like as time went on, the crime went down because the drugs got taken out of the neighborhood. Do you think that there's a way to find a balance, um, you know, like lowering crime as time goes down without increasing prices, without new people coming in? Or is that just simply a part of it? Well, you know, I mean, Lower East Side right now is very dangerous. I mean, Lower East Side is off the hook. I mean, a lot of stabbings, a lot of shootings, a lot of slashings, a lot of robberies. The one thing the, the drug dealers did, and this sounds crazy, was protect the neighborhood. Because a lot of people that are coming there to rob them, the people that are there now, would have never been there in the past because the people didn't, drug dealers didn't want the problem with the cops, so they didn't want these people, you know, slashing people on the block like that. So that was sort of like a balance. But, you know... When I look at, like, Giuliani and he gets credit for stopping the mafia, mm, I really wonder, did he really? All he really did was clean the streets. 
you know, Gotti and all those people, not saying they weren't tough, not saying Sammy Gravano wasn't a tough guy, not saying that he wasn't dangerous, none of those things. But it's the lowest level. They were the street. Like when they shot Castellano or whatever. Where did the, his money go? One reason they shot him is because he was there saying gathering up the money. He was just getting into himself and money. Well, where did that money go up to? They never went beyond the street. So where did all that mafia money, all those millions of dollars? You know, Gotti might have made a lot, but there's a lot that he made that went into that system. And where did that go up to? Giuliani never touched that. So how do you touch the crime at the top? You know, how do you go after Wall Street? How do you go after those guys? How do you go after the senators? The one thing that was good about the Godfather movie is it did show you that the, mo that the money did move up to the top. You know, all of a sudden you got to see because of that movie, although it's a fiction, but you got to realize that they're gathering, they're the end point of gathering all that money. And they're now running the government in other places. So how do we really get to that money? Okay, we got rid of Gotti, but that's just cleaning the street. All getting rid of Gotti did was made it possible now to move on to, uh, you know, Mulberry Street because the guys aren't there. So those were all like fences. And as you start cleaning up the neighborhood, which people like, but you're also getting rid of fences. And the fences are what keep other people out. And as soon as you got rid of him you opened it up for real estate. So sometimes, so you have to really ask yourself, not saying that you're better off having him there, but how do you have the balance, which is what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, how do you find that way that you can have good, safe streets? Because I'll tell you something, you know, if you're kidding yourself, if you, you don't think there's as many drugs being sold now as there was when I was before, it's just that it's not on the corners anymore. They cleaned the streets. They didn't clear they didn't clean out the drug system. They cleaned the streets. And that's different. You know, I bet you if there was somebody around here, you call up your friend, you could probably get cocaine in the next half hour. Mm. You know, so it's not that even in this neighborhood, it's not that there's not cocaine on every block, because there is. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes, how do you really start cleaning out the top? We know how to clean the toilet, how do we clean the upper part? I feel like you'd need the uh, another sector, another portion of people in power who really care about true justice. Who really care about true justice? It's going to be very hard to have. It's going to be very hard to have. You don't you don't think though that uh, the idea of uh, the supporting local business, having local business, is a is an idea of the past because now we live in like a really globalized society. Like I depend on let's say workers in China or workers abroad as they depend on us to buy their shit and so on and so forth to the point where if I was to only buy locally, if we were to only buy locally, if everyone in this building were to only buy locally, then the the crazy like economy we have set up would just collapse. Well, I mean, there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to make the baseball caps in America. And I had somebody else. I was working with his band before, before they broke up, whatever. And then we lost that contact. And that person was making them in China. And the prices were fair. The quality was great. Everything was wonderful. But once that stopped, then I'm trying to make them in America. And to make that same cap, they want $48 reach a uh, uh, wholesale oh my god yeah 48 that's not even wholesale that, that that's like buying it that's factory uh, price so wholesale you got to double it or increase it somewhat so it's 48 dollars for one of those caps 
So by the time you cook up the wholesale price and then the store has to make, make a profit, all of a sudden now the cap's 150 or $200. You can't do it. Yeah, you can't do it. No, you can't do it. But I'll tell you, the other thing was we did the, uh, the, uh, the graphic novel. Now, I find this really interesting because, you know, you often wonder, like, what you read in the paper, what you hear from the politicians isn't always what's really happening. So this book is called uh, um, Clayton, Godfather, Lower East Side Documentary. Okay, I got that title because, once again, it was a hookup thing. Bourdain came to me because I had a dope bag, and he used to do heroin. So Bourdain was going to do a program on the Lower East Side. So he came to me because he's looking for this dope bag called Toilet. So happened that I had one. And then, so, he needed people for the show, so I hooked up people for the show, and he used some of my videotape and stuff. So now I'm doing a little business with the guy. And so um, that's how I got the name Godfather Lower East Side. That came from him, a documentary. But I did this book with Julian Veloche, who's done a number of graphic novels. And Julian got the uh, publisher who made it in China. Now, what happened was, and this is partially answering your question, what happened was those books in December 12, 2019... December 12, 2019, December 12, 2019, those books got held at the border in China because of a virus. Now, we know that a slow boat from China, which is what they'd be on, a virus would be dead by the time they got to America, and they didn't stop the airplanes and things until what, March, April? I mean, people, masses of people filling up airplanes and riding for 12 hours in the air and recycling the same air seems a lot more dangerous than a, than a book that's taking a, a, a three-week tour to, uh, to America and the virus would have been dead. But why do they know enough to be worried about start, stopping it in 2019? And they held that book up until about May or something. It took a long time to get the book. But that's part of the answer to your question. And that's like if they can change the algorithms on the computer, they can also hold up your stuff at customs. And what they can do is put sanctions against, let's say, China as an example. So now all of a sudden your whole spring line is held up in customs at China because the president's mad at China. So now all of a sudden you have no flow. So they really do find ways to interrupt those kind of businesses. Well, well, the one thing is for sure is that now with uh, technology running our lives and our money uh, and our lives just run by money, uh, there's a lot more room for them, for them, meaning the government and people in power, the politicians, whoever you want to call it, to control us. Because of course, like I, like something I, I call like a supermarket survival where it's like I depend on the supermarkets for my food. I don't know how to, uh, you know, really grow my own food. I don't know how to really hunt. I don't know. And that just right. goes for everything. For every everything. single thing, I'm dependent every on a on a higher right. on a higher plane, and it gets to the point where it. Al although for a lot of the stuff, I feel like I have a little bit of personal autonomy. For a lot of shit, I really don't. Well, maybe there is a way to do that. Maybe the one, maybe one of the sidebars that's positive about COVID is a lot of people left the city and went upstate. Now you see, when Cuomo the Elder got into power, now we're talking about the early '80s. This is Cuomo. When he got into power, Mario, all of a sudden he's coming around the second time and they're bragging about, you know, when he came into power, the upstate, the industry was gone. 
it was like finished. It was like burned out. It was like what we're talking about now. Same kind of landscape. So what did he do? What did he do to re revive the economy upstate? He built prisons. So all of a sudden, he tripled the numbers of prisons. My neighborhood was a drug neighborhood. All of a sudden, third of the New York State prison population comes from my neighborhood because dealing drugs was part of a fact of life. And then all of a sudden, you get these shows that come along years later, like you, you start finding out about Michael Dowd and all of those people. They were dealing drugs within the community, and they were the police department. So all of a sudden, you realize the cops, the street. The other thing is, so, and I used to tell these kids, you know, look, if you're going to have to sell drugs out here, find the coolest, sexiest club that is here, like with Paris Hilton and that, because if you're in there selling, you're not going to be bothered. As soon as you see Paris and all those people leave, you leave because all the cops are going to be in there later. But the point that I'm getting to is he made upstate into a prison, industrial prison complex. And my neighborhood and Harlem and the, the, the other inner city neighborhoods is what filled them. But you guys are cool guys. How many cool white guys do you know that sell drugs? I mean, you know, anybody that does drugs sells drugs. So all of a sudden I realized I know people that have done shitloads of drugs, never been arrested, never been stopped, never had a problem. So all of a sudden I realized it's a targeted, it's a targeted market who goes to jail for drugs. If I went to Harvard, guaranteed there's a lot of people there that sell drugs that we could arrest. It's not going to happen. So how do we make the equality across the board? So that becomes part of it. But what I was getting to is that a lot of those people that left the city because of COVID, maybe some of them are going to open up farms upstate or gardens upstate. And maybe it's possible to start looking into those people and finding them that can market their food in the city. And so you can have your, you know, turnips and grapes and whatever else it is from people that grew it in upstate. I'm just saying, I don't know. No, I agree. Um, what happened with COVID is very interesting because a lot of people, I remember I was interested in the van life. I was looking at vans and the prices of them, and they gone skyrocket because the need for them was just going through the roof. So many people were resorting to alternative lifestyles, realizing that there's so, like, you know, life can change in a, in a week's notice, so I need to be ready. Like he said, I don't know anything. I don't know how to grow food. If the supermarket's closed, I'm done for. People are going to be eating each other, robbing each other. I need to get out of here, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? So people started getting interested in kind of, I would say, the natural way of life, kind of farming, um, not being dependent on, on a so-called right. corporation, but just yeah. being intertwined within their own family. You know? That's right. So let's switch topics. <laughs> Let's get out of politics and talk about some fun shit for a while. We got yeah. any fun stuff you want to talk about, or we want to just talk about? Uh, well, I just want to say before before we switch topics is that I do I do think there is a lot of opportunity uh, within the people to you know change their lives and do other have other types of lifestyles even within the constraints of the finances that we're in and all that shit. I really think there's ways. The only thing is is that we think there isn't ways because we're so used to what what we've been doing which is like uh you know like just paying everything we're paying working the way we're working thinking the way we're thinking right. in our mind there's no other way but there there is another way but of course just like everything else you you sacrifice some shit to get to that point but uh on some other things to talk about i actually was wondering what you think about uh cars in new york city do you think that they should put a limit on how many people can own cars in new york because obviously it's a huge problem 
the traffic is to the point of no return, and it's just crazy. I mean, are there other ways of doing it? I mean, is there a way to work it out so that all the stores have somebody that works in the store that could stay there overnight and deal with inventory, for example? Like, is it possible to have all the deliveries made at night? I mean, now, it's a, I mean, deliveries eat up a lot of parking because, you know, when you're heading up 2nd Avenue or something, it's always delivery trucks that are there. Okay. And, like, with your average store, restaurant, or whatever, they can't be there at 4 o'clock in the morning because, you know, they just can't work it like that. So they could switch the traffic around so that all the deliveries, it would mean if you had a small store, you'd have to have to have another crew that would be there working from, uh, let's say, uh, you know, one to six or something. And then you could have like all the streets busy with, with loading and unloading and trucks and stuff like that, garbage, all the big truck stuff going through the city. You could maybe do that. I mean, I hear the, 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 the car thing and, and how do you really do that? I mean, once again, that's like Bloomberg. I don't think he decreased the numbers of cars on the road with the bikes that he brought in. But all the bikes are city bikes. So it's now another corporation. And like the neighborhood guy like uh, uh, Frank's Bikes and Delancey or on uh, East Broadway, they put uh, you know, a city bike place down there. And part of his economy was renting bikes. Mm. So now all of a sudden the system is set up with the credit card and whatever that you use the city bike. So how do you change the thinking to also maybe if you're going to have more of a bike economy, make it bike people rather than corporate people with the bikes, like Citibank. Yeah, I mean, isn't the problem with that that if it's bike people as opposed to corporations running it, uh, the people in power have more power over moving corporations in one direction as opposed to thousands and hundreds of, of bike people moving them in one direction is very hard to do. So if they want to get some shit done, they're just like, corporation, here's this money, do it now. Well, the other problem with the bike culture is, is now you have the electric bike. So now, all of a sudden, outside my place, I put a little barricade across where you can't be, be riding right close to the, to the wall because if I step out my door, those bikes are like 80 pounds and go at 30 miles an hour because I got a delivery guy down the street and he's got like five bicycle people with that and most of them are electric and they shoot down the street like they couldn't give a shit. Or if you walk across the Williamsburg Bridge, you got the same thing. You have all these scooters and electric bikes that are doing the same thing. So the bike thing isn't 100%. It's not pedaling. Mm-hmm. A lot of those bikes are electric, and they go really, what do they go, 30 miles an hour, 35? Yeah, they're slowly, like, evolving into a motorcycle. They're slowly as close to a moped or a motorcycle as you could get, yes. Yeah. And with the big tires, what do they weigh, 80 pounds? I don't know, those things are hunky. They're hunky. So I'm coming out my door, my wife comes out the door, let's say, all of a sudden this 80-pound uh, bike on 30 miles an hour kind of clips into her, she's dead. So the sidewalk now with the bikes is more dangerous in a way than it was before. Mm-hmm. So everything comes with a bag of shit attached to it. So <laughs> that's right. It's all good, bro. Um, it's we needed that. No, it it is everything. Truly, does come with a bag of shit attached to it. So we just have to filter that out because it's important for you to live your dream. It's important for you to have your ambition. It's important for you to have your goals. You know, I mean, it's almost like sex. If you have that powerful dream 
and that powerful ambition, and you all of a sudden start thinking about the radio program for the first time and all of that. When you get into those conversations and talk until one o'clock in the morning or whatever, there's something really get about getting high with that, right? Do you agree mm, with that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so that's the kind of stuff we also have to get back to the people, because that kind of excitement is really a form of life that's, that's when life is at its best. You know, it's not sniffing that Coke, it's not one more line. It's like when you're hitting that conversation and you guys are gonna start putting this thing together and you got an idea and you got an idea and you're wrapping it out between you. That's when the juices are flowing and that's when life is happening. I, I think that uh, one thing I wanna say is that your life and all the work that you've done and all the, the hours that you've put in and the passion that you've put into what you do is like honestly an amazing example of the things that just one human can can do because we often think of like like you said you need a whole bunch of people and blah 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 but just one person with a camera was able to just put so many shock waves through life put so many shock waves throughout like the system or you know just end up on crazy channels like oprah uh doc yeah, doing absolutely. like first ofs of a lot of things that's right that's right and, and it's truly impressive and now and you did it with a camera when there was even less technology right now there's even more and you know there's if if everyone did some shit type like what you did this world would be absolutely like so different than it is right now it could be very different if you look at this stack of books i don't know what's it a foot and a half tall or whatever these anthologies a lot of these are anthologies I probably had 400 different people or more writing for me and then editing and stuff. That's 400 people, some people with PhDs, some people that were professors, some people that were criminals, but people that, want, that could add to the book that I was doing, like let's say a tattoo book. I had the woman that put together the Natural History Museum uh, show, the anthropologist from that, because there's a lot of people that have something that they want to say, and you shouldn't try to deny those people, or you shouldn't think that those people are too much bigger than me. You can actually embrace all of those people if your idea is good. Mm -hmm. So what you need is the idea. And there's lots of people out there that can join you and will participate in your idea. Like, I mean, it kind of, I found it kind of funny. I know this kid that's really pr comes from a really wealthy family, and he's telling me that, oh, you know, any friends I got got to get paid to write or whatever. <laughs> well, you know, join the police department. I hear they're looking for jobs. You know, I mean, to get a lot of this stuff started, it's about the passion, it's about the ambition. Everything isn't just about getting paid. It's about doing something and creating something. And I bet you, you know, when you think back over a lot of your, your stuff in your life, it was the stuff that you you'd had, you're not getting paid to do this. It's your passion. You know, I can't say, oh, well, I'm not going to go talk to these guys unless you hook me up with 100 bucks. You know, I'm happy to spread my whatever it is that I have to say, and you're happy to, hopefully happy to listen to it. But... Uh, but you're doing your passion. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just not not everyone thinks like that, especially now with the money-centered life, paycheck-centered life, rent-centered life. Yeah, it's hard. Money becomes the number one concern, not passion or helping anyone out or, or uniting or helping out the next man. It's all just about like, okay, that's fine, but what do I get out of it? But that passion gives you experience, and eventually that experience, you can take it somewhere because now you have something else to talk about. When all of a sudden, let's say something comes up, and let's say there's a job opportunity or something, you might look at that job and say, hey, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. I think with this job here where you've got 100 people working here, I think if we took a radio program and we listened to, you know, instead of having a box where people make complaints in or something, you have a radio show or something where people can air their views or whatever. And maybe you could find a way to work into a business like that. 
you know, all of a sudden, what you're doing here is not wasting your time. You're gathering skills mm -hmm. and you're gathering experience. It's like when I was working for that landlord, being the hookup guy. I got a shitty paycheck, but it helped me pay my rent. But I learned how to get a plumber. I learned how to get an electrician. Those skills took me to when all of a sudden when I had the building, now I know how to get a plumber, how to get an electrician. What you're learning here is skills. Do you think that uh, New York City is still a place where uh, someone can come and pursue their passions or someone who was born here can pursue their passions and just uh, really just live a, a fulfilling life where they're working on their own shit? I would say that depends on what it is, but I would say you have to be a lot more creative and it's a lot harder. I would definitely say that. I would definitely think about a crew, too. I think you guys are smart having at least two people doing this. I think that's a good backup. I think it's a, I think it's a smart thing to do rather than just one person, you know? And I think that, um, I don't know. It's a, You know, I can't really answer it for you. I mean, I'm still trying to, you know, by not having a career, the downside of it is, yeah, I had a great adventure, which I'm happy about, and, you know, kind of, you know, ripped up my quadriceps and things, so, you know, got war injuries, if you like. But uh, I lived a fulfilling life, and it was good for me. Well, why do you say that you don't, you, you didn't have a career? Because when you, because if you're going to have a career, you sort of designate what it is that you want to do. When I came here, I wanted to be an artist. So then you target a gallery, you work to get into that gallery. Once you're in that gallery, you work to sort of uh, scheme to get your art into museums. You try to figure out how can I get into this place? How can I move over to this gallery? How can I get into that magazine? You know, that's really what a career is about. It's about developing your whole sort of lifestyle to fit that. And for me, the art thing wasn't it. Still consider myself an artist, but if you go to, uh, let's say, although I did get 14 tapes into the Museum of Modern Art and was also an art director of a movie called Shadows of the City that just got into the Museum of Modern Art, so it's not that those things don't happen. But I wasn't trying to be Jeff Koons. You know, Jeff Koons spent his life becoming Jeff Koons, mm -hmm. and that wasn't for me. You know, and so, um, yeah, so, I, but, you know, maybe now at the end I can get the career where all of a sudden, because people don't think outside the box, mm. you know, maybe the person would say to me, well, well, who are you? You know, like your average Joe. And you'd say, well, this is what I've done. They say, well, that doesn't sound like Picasso to me. I'd say, no, it doesn't. But I still see myself as an artist and everything I've done as art. So that's why I did the camera book. Because the other thing that I've tried to do is take my thoughts and put it into writing somewhere. So I'm leaving something behind. So I'm leaving behind audio. I'm leaving behind photographs. I'm leaving, be leaving behind uh, videos. And I'm leaving behind books. So that I'm hoping at some point in the future, somebody will come along and look at it and see that whole thing. And it'll make sense to them. Because... The Jesus trip is perfect. One guy and a herd of sheep. I mean, that's basically how life works. You know, a guy like Hitler comes along, takes all those smart Germans, takes them all off into one direction. It's just kind of how life works. You know, so it really is kind of based on the sheep thing. And, so, and, and like your, your ability to, you know, amplify what you see and what you think just gets multiplied exponentially with the camera and with the book. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Like, think about how how much change uh, you filming the the police riots caused, but yeah. how, how it's there still would have been changed, but significantly less without someone like you risking it and documenting it at a time when that wasn't as popular you know now of course um now that every single person has a camera on their phone yeah. when some shit goes down with the police everyone's going to film it but it was, but right. back then probably not oh at that time no i mean at that time absolutely not there was another guy paul garen who got 20 minutes and then after he thought the cops were going to be after him and he got paranoid and kind of moved out of it and then got involved in the, the art world and kind of uh nanjun pike and holly solomon and then turned it into a career thing, whereas I didn't. I just turned it into uh, continuing to do it. And also, it's like, what's a, here's, a, here's an example of the career thing. Let's say taking pictures. News is, goes in cycles. So whether you have video or photographs, you know that with the newspaper, to get it in the paper for the next day, in those years, you had to have it there by, let's say, 11 o'clock. Let's say if, you're gonna, if you have a piece of tape, you want to try to get it on the news, and you're not guaranteed... Then you, you'd maybe have to have it there by 9.30. So you have to leave the riot or the protest or whatever it is that you're doing and go uptown because then the, the post would be uptown. So you have to take the train. They have to develop the pictures. They have to look at the pictures. They have to decide, and then you come back. So in order to get that picture in the paper, which is a career move, you've given up three hours of action. So I took the three hours of action. You know, and in the end, who knows who's right and who's wrong? Because what worked for me wouldn't necessarily work for the other person. And you're right. If I hadn't done it, in some way, something else would have happened that would have filled that gap. Because mm. it was just time. You know, it's kind of like with, with graffiti. You know, Henry Chaffant and Martha Cooper captured kind of one line and one group and one part of the Bronx. And that became the history of graffiti, even till this day. Yeah. And nobody has really broken and done the history of graffiti. Now, that would be an interesting project for somebody to do, and if you guys are interested in graffiti. And now, it's not putting those two down in any sort of way because they did a public service because they escalated it up to a place where now it's worldwide and has a lot of passionate followers. But really, all those other lines and all those other people, there was a lot of people that got... You know, uh, I won't mention any names, but there was people that got famous out of out of the, those photographs that were never all city. Mm -hmm. They weren't even much beyond the, the trains that they were captured on. But now they have an international reputation for doing that. Whereas other people maybe doing the J or the G or the M or some other lines, they're unknown. Yeah. And the one thing that this technology does is that it shows you that a lot of those people have photographs. And I'll bet you somebody could put together, maybe you guys, a book of the history, an anthology, of those other periods of time of overlooked graffiti. And that would be like really a public service. And then like there were crews and posses. And then there was like graffiti that breaks the mold. You know, nobody ever talks about Peter Missing as a graffiti guy. He's probably one of the most up people in New York City. Because he had the upside down uh, champagne glass, you've probably seen that, mm -hmm. that symbol. But people copied that. It was like the goddamn peace sign in the anti-gentrification movement. It showed up in Germany. It showed up across Europe. And people might not have known that it was Peter Missing and the band Missing Foundation, but they knew the symbol. So that is also a part of graffiti because they marked it on all the walls and all the trains and everywhere that you went, there was the Peter's champagne glass. So graffiti has never really been looked at in terms of its wholeness. I knew a guy downtown, Red Ed, Eddie Braddock III. He uh, used to put the Wall Street 
symbols. And he was prolific and put a lot of places. But it wasn't sexy and it didn't fit in with the language of graffiti. But his thought was, at that time, if you read, like if you look at my door, the early pictures, you see those, the number writing in the background, that was the Dow Jones. Now, theoretically, you should be able to take that Dow Jones symbol, those numbers, and go back to the history of the Dow and tell what time it was, what day it was, and where the Dow was at that point. And he could be right. I don't know. I've never tested it. I'm just thinking about, so like the, the Henry Chalfons, the Mar Martha Coopers, who were yeah. able to, through their documentation and through their yeah. making of art, bring, bring graffiti as a platform to a higher scale, show it to the masses in a way that's palatable. And I'm thinking about the amount of change that I call is just within graph. Huge. But then when you think about out, outside of graffiti, for example, doing something kind of similar, which is just, I'm just, in terms of documentation, for example, whoever it was, the girl, I think, who filmed the, the George Floyd incident, that turned into a worldwide event because one person filmed it. Absolutely. And same thing with just the making of some books that have caused straight up wars or caused different ideologies or... You know, these, these documents, whether it be a photograph, a video, or a book, it really changes the course of humanity in a way that really gives the power to an individual. Sometimes. I mean, I understand what it is you're saying, and you're absolutely right. But let me give you another dimension to that. If I look at, for example, Keith Haring, if you go to the No Art site, capital N-O, explanation mark, small A-R-T, N-O, explanation mark, A-R-T, and look up LA2 Angel Ortiz, there's no question that LA2 worked with Keith Haring and they collaborated. There's no question when Keith Haring went to Milan the first time he went with LA2. I think when he went to Japan with him. His first show at Chafrazi Gallery were the two of them together. They were worked compatibly and in tandem, so it became the look of Keith Haring. Now, I've worked on this now for almost 20 years, and I'm trying to get LA2 recognized for his portion. Who's LA2? Puerto Rican kid from the projects in the Lower East Side who dropped out of high school who joined the Keith Haring parade, right? He doesn't count. I mean, his art is his LA2, sometimes TNS, CBS, the crew, and LA Rock. So it isn't like there's a mystery. You know what they say with Brock and Picasso when they two were working together a lot, you couldn't tell which was Brock and which was Picasso because there was so much the same. LA2 is his signature. And when you go through the sarcophagus, a lot of those big heads, you can see L.A. too all the way through it. And yet it's called Keith Haring. The big book by Shafrazi, the big pink, pink book by, by uh, Jeffrey Deitch, the Keith Haring book. Mm -hmm. And you look at the, uh, the one put, put up by the Whitney, the same book. So you got the Whitney Museum of American Art, one of the most important art museums in the world. If you go through that book, he's not identified in that book with the artwork that's his. There's one, there's a vase that, that says Fab Five Freddy, the guy standing on one side, and an unknown woman on the other side. That's just from the, the Whitney. Now, if that was a Jackson Pollock, it would say Jackson Pollock. Probably wouldn't na name the person beside it, but if they did, okay. So the thing of it is, he's being robbed because he's a Puerto Rican from the Lower East Side, and they don't give a shit about him. And the reality is, if you look at it, that vase is all his signature. Mm. And this is in the Whitney book. And you would expect the Whitney to identify the pedigree of the piece. Look in the book. It's a big pink book. Keith Haring. Go to the No Art site and you'll, <coughs> you'll see I've done a lot of articles. 
he wanted to take over the Keith Haring Wall. When Keith Haring, when the museum, uh, the new museum, and Jeffrey Deitch and Tony Goldman put in $30,000 to recreate the original Keith Haring Wall from 1983, I think it was 83. Keith actually left the tag on the side that said so, S-O-E, and L-A-2. He painted around that. He wanted to leave that in because he wanted to meet L-A-2 and he loved his tag, so he actually sought him out. So what happened is, and I'm going to tell you another little story off the side. There was a, there was a guy called Rodney. He's a black guy. He used to run a crew on Lower East Side, a heroin crew on Avenue D. Now, Rodney's crew was mostly Puerto Rican. But they sold mostly heroin from like Houston to Six. This is back in the early days. He gave Pete Keith Herring a pass to come into the neighborhood. You know, you have to remember Keith Herring is a kid from Cutstown, Pennsylvania. Obviously, doesn't know shit about New York. Takes you a few years to get your boots on here, right? Even if you live, grew up in Queens, it still takes you time to go to CB's and get your roots. Mm-hmm. So, and he's a gay guy dressed kind of funny with these weird glasses. So LA2 got him a pass to go down there and go to, like, uh, uh, you know, the projects, whatever. And then that's why, like, if there was that corner, uh, I think it was a Cuchifrito place or something, where they got that robot that's, you know, that DJ robot that's throwing up, and you look at that, that's the Keith Haring thing. He, that's on Avenue D in Houston. He did that because LA2 gave him the pass to, to get through Rodney because LA2 used to be part of that crew. Now, LA2 was a young kid at that time, but he still had that kind of ability to do that but so once so la comes to me because he always came to me whenever he's in trouble he comes to me and says look i feel really bad about that wall and he never keith died in 92 and he thought he was going to be mentioned in the foundation he got nothing and i did a card a show of his where it said, uh, it showed the picture of, of all the graffiti with LA2 and all that, and it said, what's wrong with this picture on the outside of the card? But the card was actually a pamphlet from the museum's city of New York, Keith Haring. LA2's all over the vase. So it's kind of like, wow, how does that work? I wish I was Puerto Rican. So anyway, what happens is, so he comes to me and says, you know, he, he still loves Keith, right, because Keith really took him around the world and whatever. He's got no animosity there. So he wanted to pay tribute to Keith. So I said, okay, I got a big ladder, get some paint. I'll go over there with you, the good-looking white guy. And, uh, you know, cops come or something like that. We're okay because I had a book, the catalog from the first show that shows L.A. 2 and Keith Haring. So we go over there. He takes over the wall and fills the whole thing with L.A. 2 around the original Keith Haring stuff. So... Cops come, show them the book. They drive away because we did it on a weekend mm-hmm. because it was total outlaw style, right? So, um, you know, then there was one woman came up and said, oh, do you have permission to do that? I said, yeah, yeah, it's no problem. So what happened is is that, uh, so I go to Dice before he goes to MUCA because I was good with Dice because I knew the Iraq crew and all these people and they used to show with Dice and so I got a- access, right? So I think I'm going to do Deitch a big favor because he's going to be the director of this big museum to have this book out there in the world where all the, the, the pedigree is wrong. I thought it would be harmful to him. Turned out I was wrong. So after a while, he starts screaming at me, you're threatening me. And I'm saying, whoa, you know, like, chill. I'm not threatening you. 
we paid thirty thousand dollars for that wall. That's why I heard it was worth thirty thousand dollars, and you ruined it. Mm, I thought it as uh, making it look better and making it look more original and like that. So anyway, he then tried to get the order of protection against me in New York and L.A. And I wasn't threatening. Believe me, I, what would, I mean, why would I threaten him? If you don't do this, I'm going to come back and steal your shoes. Yeah, right. Come on. I mean, you're not have to be a retard. He might think I look like a retard, but I'm not a retard. <laughs> you understand? So it's like, hey, you got the wrong guy. So before I leave, he gives me a copy of the Big Pink Book. So and he also screams at me that LA2 was a work for hire. And I'm thinking, yeah, right, two artists start at the same time. The other artist is such a schemer that he's thinking, okay, I really like this work. He's going to work with me. He, I'm going to call him a work for hire. Come on, people don't think like that. You know, that's, that's business talk that comes later. So that's an example of somebody who is 100% collaborator, 100% his pictures are in the Whitney book and these other places, and he doesn't get credit. Mm. So it's kind of like, you know, you can really pull a lot of you know, wool over a lot of people's eyes. My hope before I hit the big one is that I'm able to sort of prove the, that his, how much work he really put into that. Nothing, I mean, I like Keith Haring, nothing against Keith Haring, not trying to put Keith Haring down. I'm just trying to say that this little Puerto Rican kid from the projects is just the half of that act. It's a collaboration. And like Picasso and Brock, Picasso went on and became the big guy, Brock stayed back and became the little guy, but Brock's still an important figure in history. And L.A. too deserves to have that place in history. Yeah, so it's not always just because you were part of it that you get that exposure. But, yeah. but, but like initially one of my points was not, not just about exposure, but also just like um, you as a person having impact on mass amounts of people through your work. So although LA2 might not have gotten, you know, all the exposure himself, it still had an impact on a lot well, of people. Well, he, he had the exposure. He didn't have the credit. Yeah, yeah that's what I mean. So yeah. someday when somebody puts that together, they'll remember that exposure and he'll get that credit. Yeah. So that's, so that's part of it. And taking over that wall was a big move. Actually, and it's not part of the history anywhere either. Elsa and I took over that wall one other, one, one other time. I think it was 1991. And that wall is big. I didn't realize <laughs> how big that wall was at that time. It was the first time we took it over. Because I also went down there on a weekend, like a Saturday. It took Saturday and Sunday to do that whole wall. First, we painted the whole wall white. This is when it was in that in-between period. And then I did the designs on it, the big ladder, and we painted it. And my whole thing was about... Um, so I had somebody go down to the court bit, uh, courthouse and take quotes off of the, qu the court. So all those quotes are there were about equal justice and equal rights for everybody. So it was kind of a political statement with my drawings. Mm -hmm. And so it lasted most of a summer, so thousands of people saw it. And you're right, a lot of people have felt my influence, but they don't know who I am or don't know that I did that. So that's part of, that's part of the whole right. thing, too. I mean, people within a limited place know who I am. But also, you know, I've been really lucky, too. Like, there's a movie out called Captured. And you can watch it for free off the internet. And it's done by Dan Levin, Ben Solomon, the directors, and Jenner uh, First, the um, editor. So, you know, I got a lot of stuff out there, but it doesn't really come back to me. You know, if I'm walking around the streets, people don't necessarily know who I am. And things really go in spurts. Like when I did those things for Supreme, everybody knew that I was on Supreme for that week. Yeah. And then when the week was over, it kind of disappeared. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was no longer the supreme guy anymore. So these things are short-lived. Yeah, like you said, it, like the news goes in cycles. Yeah, and I can also put people to sleep, so. But I just, I just want to say, um, like I said earlier, the way, you, the lifestyle you've lived and all the work that you've put out in a creative sphere and things that, you know, have had an influence from the hardcore scene to just uh, general, general like humanitarian rights, pol- abusive police and all that stuff. It's uh, inspiring for people like us who have been, you know, influenced by a lot of this. And I just have to say immense thank you for coming on the show and, you know, giving, a, giving us a good... I'm inspired to be here. My name's Clayton Patterson, and I'm on Angel and Z podcast. So, very good. And I don't think I put my name out in the beginning, so... Uh, I'll put it out there. You'll put it out there. Yeah. And, uh, no, it's an honor for me. I mean, I love this kind of stuff. It's small, you know, it's... it's uh, you know, I wish you the best of luck. I like the neighborhood quality. I like the community aspect to it. And, uh, no, I had a great time. This is, to me, was as good as Oprah, believe me. <laughs> cool, man. Thank you so much, bro. Thank you so much. Peace.